You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, in your mercies, you have brought us together on this Lord's Day, and we're thankful that you have fed us with um, our corporate life together already in prayer and in the hearing of your word preached. And I pray that now as we enter into the study of your word, that you will give our hearts and our minds readiness and attentiveness and an openness, Lord, to what you would uh, have to teach us and help the teacher and those who are here to learn that all of us would uh, come under your view this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, feel free to come in and out, I guess. Um, so we're, we're in Ecclesiastes today again, and my goal is to kind of kind of clip through the first three chapters, or at least the major themes of the first three chapters, uh, on our way to sort of moving forward. Because I think these first three chapters do lay out for us um, the significance, or at least the major themes that the book of Ecclesiastes is going to address. So we're going to kind of sort through things uh, here in this book, and you'll know... Verse 1, and if you have Bibles or phones, you know, feel free to look with me. But if you look at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, you have the, the, the title that gets us right out of the gate, the words of the preacher. Um, and that word there, preacher, is... Somebody, by the way, left me... This was very... I don't know, like a kid's chalk, so that's fun. Um, if, you can, if I could write, I'd work... Um, so the Q, H, and the L of that term, uh, Kohelet, the, the words of the preacher is how it's translated in English. The Hebrew word is Kohelet, which is based off of, and this is going to be a little geeky here, but I'm going to do more of this before the day's over. Um, it's based off of the, of a Hebrew word, which, Kahal, which means to call out, um, which is, uh, when the Greek translators were translating the Hebrew into the Greek, the word that they often used to translate this kahal form is ekklesia, um, which is where we get our English word church from. So there's a relationship here between called out ones and the ones who do the calling out, the identifying as, as the preacher. So this is someone whose public office in the life of Israel is to call people to um, their being before God. I mean, I think that's a way of thinking about the nature of the preaching task itself. They're, they're the called ones. So here you have the preacher, the son of David, a king in Jerusalem, and we get the first themes right out of the gate. And that's when I want to see these first few verses, and then we'll begin to move kind of at a, a, a bit more of a light speed pace. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, you know this with the nature of a book like Ecclesiastes that's born out of the wisdom literature. It's a book um, that doesn't necessarily tell you um, the ways in which it's meant to be understood. That's part of its challenge. A book like Ecclesiastes is generative um, in the way in which it's to be received. And because it's so um, visceral and emotive or existential, it, it, it lives... In the fr- on the front porch of your of your being, it, it raises the kind of questions that 
um, when you put the phone down by your bed at night and you begin to let your mind wander, the, these are the kind of questions that begin to present themselves to you. Um, and it's why we try to inoculate ourselves from these kinds of questions by whatever means of anesthetization we can find. Um, but the point is, when we're quiet and alone, and especially when you look back at the 20th century, we're kind of forced to think about what does it mean to be? What, why are we here? I mean, these are, the, these are the kinds of questions that philosophers raised, and it's why you majored in business wisely, I'd say. Um, but, you know, the sort of big philosophical questions are, why is there something and not nothing? Um, why are we here? What does it mean to be? What does it mean to be a human? Uh, what fuels existence? How can we even know things? I mean, these are these are the big philosophical questions of the Western world. And frankly, it's the kind of question that Ecclesiastes is putting right to us. I, I like that. I mentioned this last week, but I like that about the Bible. The Bible will not let us transcend ourselves out of um, real life experiences in the ordinary world. It won't let you do that. As, and as much as really we, we would um, at least... Three days of the week for me, I'd love to do that. Um, but we're not, the Bible doesn't give us a kind of get out of life free card. Um, it forces you to turn toward it and to think deeply about it. And here, the preacher, and I think it's a good thing to think of the preacher here at the end of his life, giving a kind of reflection about life, given the sum total of his existence and his experiences. And it's as if he's putting his arm around us as his children, to say, let me give you some paternal advice here. Let me give you some, and this is the technical terms here, let me give you some wisdom so that you can think about how best to navigate your, this life that you're called uh, to live into. And it seems, again, on the front end, to be a rather sort of negative portrayal. And, and, I, and I don't want to in any way um, sand the rough edges of Ecclesiastes out in that way. Um, Ecclesiastes does have that kind of um, a, a kind of desperate feel to it at certain moments. It, and I'll say this so that we get a sense of the forest for the trees. I don't think Ecclesiastes allows you to stay desperate. But I do think it creates space for you to enter into a life of, and these will be the three we'll talk about today, a life of wisdom, a life of toil, a life of hard work and labor, and a life of pleasure. It will call you to sort of think about those things and to see that they really are um, never ultimately satisfying. They're, they're vanity. They're hevel. So with that in mind, vanity, vanity, let's talk about that word just for a little bit. Okay, I'm going to erase this one. And I'll, I'll, we'll keep this thing loose today. So if you have questions through the middle of it, stop me and we'll, we'll give it a go. Um, here's the here's the word, and I'm gonna keep my notes before me. Can you all see this over here? All right. Um, here, here's here's another Hebrew word for the day. All right. Hevel, which we would spell Hevel, or just Hevel, right? That's the, tr the Hebrew word that we're getting our translation of vanity. Okay, now I mentioned this last week, and I mentioned it over the summer, but I'll do so again because um, this is really kind of the key to unlocking the book, I think. And, by the way, the translation of Hevel um, can almost become determinative for the ways in which people go about reading it, the whole book. So, 
What, what are, when you hear, I'm just curious. When you hear the word vanity, I don't think this word, even in English, is immediately self-evident. I mean, what, what do we mean when we say vanity of vanities? Of course, we think of vanity in terms of, you know, shallow and surfacy and, you know, that stuff is kind of, she's vain or he's vain. But that vanity fair, right? Something like that. But what, what, what's vanity here when it comes back, at least the way in which the English translation is, is sort of pressing into this idea? What, what, what are some terms you might stick with vanity? Pointlessness. Pointless. Ephemeral. Ephemeral. Okay. Vapor. Now that's important here. This one, vapor or mist, because, um, and this can often get lost. But hevel is a metaphor. Okay, um, if if you were in kind of the ancient world, Hebrew world, and just and we're talking about hevel, um, the the immediate idea of hevel is uh, uh, mist, smoke, vapor. Um, uh, you know, cigarette smoke is a great way of sort of thinking about it. You make it, you make a kind of puff on it, and then it's there. And and it's material. I think that's something worth pointing out. That's something that you that smoke is a material existence, but it's un, but you can't grab it. Um, I think another th- uh, a term that we might link with vanity is is futile uh, po- or pointless. The bathroom counter. <laughs> no, wait, wait. Are you say are you saying the kind of effort that I put in at the bathroom counter is pointless? I I will I'll take that on the cheek. I can get it. I get. Yeah, the, I get. Yeah. So, and it's called a vanity. Yeah. This is this is this, this is going to go off the tracks fast. I can tell. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the women's bathroom counter, vanity, um, po- pointlessness, um, uh, uh, so, something not graspable. I mean, I think, I think this particular reading of vanity that goes back to Jerome all the way in the uh, late fourth century lends itself toward a kind of contempt of the world view. Um, and I'll have to tell you that if you take that lens and read it through large portions of Ecclesiastes, especially these first uh, two chapters, it kind of works. And you can walk away saying, "What? Wh- th- th- there's a contempt for material existence. It's futile. It's pointless. Um, and then when he gets into chapter 2, he talks about wisdom and all the wisdom that you you seek to gain. And then, and I feel this, you know, this particular point in my own career and the vocation that God has led me to in His providence. I mean, I, you know, here I am in mid-career as an academic kind of person. I teach for a living. This is how I pay the bills. And um, I'm having multiple experiences now where I will um, hear a book that I know I need to engage. And then I will go and engage it, find it, on my shelf and realized that I did a pretty thorough reading of that at one point. And I can't I don't remember it. Right. I'm having to I'm having to relearn it again. See, I think in my in my twenties, going even into my graduate studies, my kind of intellectual ideal was these this ever ascending ladder 
where all the knowledge would become aggregate as you moved along. And, um, and I could just read Calvin once and kind of get it and then move. And, and now I realize it's, it's the life of learning, at least for me. Others, others have this kind of steel trap brain, but at least for me, it's not going to work like that. So now here I am mid-career having to recalibrate that. And there are moments when if you press me in a corner and you said, it's not, you're not just building a house, you're constantly laying brick on this thing. The house will never be finished intellectually or from a wisdom perspective or in whatever area lights your fire. And you can step back with Solomon in Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 and say, to the reading and writing of books, there's just no end. And it, and it can lead you to a point of kind of contempt, I think. So that particular reading of, of, of Hevel as vanity, as pointlessness, as futility, leading toward a kind of contempt for the world, I think um, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to it, though I don't think it's necessarily the best way of going about understanding the book in, in toto as a whole. I have some sympathy for it because I think all of us feel this in some level. I think that's why a book like Ecclesiastes um, presents continual opportunities and challenges because we, we, we bring our own experiences to this and we feel it deeply. We feel it. Um, I mean, those of you who are in here um, who are grayer in the head than others, right? Um, you can probably feel something like um, Solomon saying, you know, I, I've done all of this labor in my life to amass wealth, to build a portfolio, to have things finally become stable within the sort of financial corners of my home and for my future. And then when I pass away, someone else will get it. And you know what he says? This too is vanity and a chasing after wind. Right. You're like, yeah, I get that. So that's one way I think of understanding it. But that's, again, we're dealing with a metaphor here. And metaphors aren't always self-evident in the ways in which their point of contact with reality is meant to be deployed. This is one option. I'm not necessarily persuaded it's the best one, but it's certainly an option. Here are some others. I'll just toss them up here for you. Um, here's that, That's one. Two, and this one's getting a lot of traction today in, in the uh, scholarly world. Absurd. All right. Um, there's an absurdity to it. Uh, the um, the tensions of life that we live into uh, don't make sense and can't be transcended. Right, that that's one particular reading, and there's a scholar that's got a lot of leg life on that one. I won't bore you with the details. Another one would be um, beyond human comprehension. So I'll just call that the BYC. Okay. Uh, no, that's not right. <laughs> I'll call that the B-H-C, Beyond Human uh, Comprehension. Here's another one that comes from another scholar. And can't you, are you getting the point here? The point is, this is generative. Lots of ideas can be attached to that word right here. What's it doing? Is um, uh, enigmatic. Which I think is in the same sort of family as absurd, but without quite the edge of it. Uh, life has an enigmatic quality to it. And if you're looking for a sum total philosophical or theological system by which to make, uh, by which to understand the sum reality of life, good luck. Life's too enigmatic for that kind of totalizing theory, some grand meta theory for understanding all of reality. 
Um, and then the last one, which is the one I, again, I, I'm not convinced that we have to choose one. I'm not convinced of that. I think, uh, matter of fact, I, I did that as an exercise this week. I said, all right, Genelette, take your one idea that you kind of light on here, and the one that you prefer, and read it through. And it works in most places. But it doesn't work everywhere. In other words, if I take, if I take just one idea of Hevel and try to apply it across the board, it, 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 there can be a place, it works in the most this way, but in a lot of instances it doesn't seem to work either. But this is the one that I tend to sort of like <laughs> for various reasons, um, and that is ungraspable, fleeting, temporary. Right, ungraspable, and again, that if you think about the metaphor of the smoke itself, along with its cousin, right, um, uh, within the, the the text itself, this is Hevel and a chasing after the wind. You said that, and which is a very provocative sort of phrase, isn't it? Chasing after wind, it's it's chasing after something. I mean, this is really sort of important to think about wind as something that is material; it exists. It's, a, it's got matter. We feel it, but I can never hold it. It never becomes our possession. Um, so when you think about uh, the nature of uh, vanity or, or hevel, it's it's something that we enter into human existence. We enter into the various facets of our human existence from a relating standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a from an intellectual standpoint. But we recognize that that which we're after is ultimately, at the end of the day, something not graspable, not manageable. It's temporary and it's fleeting. And here's, here's a, a, a nice um, way that he describes this here in uh, verses 3 and 4. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All right, so that's a question about our labor. A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. In other words, material life, temporary life, has a certain kind of stability within earthly patterns. This, this is what I, and again, if, I, if we could go negative on this, I think this is where Kohelet would say, this is the big joke, right? The joke is, there is a certain kind of stability to earthly patterns that we observe. We'll see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Unfortunately, this thing's kind of that, that chapter's gotten trivialized a little bit because of the, its music reception. But a time to be born, a time to die. I mean, there, there's a certain kind of rhythm to our existence. There's a certain kind of pattern that we can look at. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I'm, I think I'm a little bit more on edge this week. I don't know why, but a little, a little edgy. It's too hot, <laughs> and we're in September, and it's about to be fall. And I remember saying in August to my colleagues and even with my family, what a great August we've had. Um, I mean, it really, for, for, as far as as bad as it could have been, this has not been bad at all. You know, kind of high 80s and got a nice little breeze. August has been great. And look at what we're in right now. Right? And as was, and, and, but why would I be upset about that? Well, because even though we're in Alabama, it's going to be hot in September. But the point is, there's a certain kind of stability to the patterns of our, of the seasons, to the patterns of, of human existence that we, we get. So there's a stability here within the patterns of, of the created world, but we are not stable. 
in it. We're, we're, we are not that. I'm going to tell you how this has sat on me. Um, these, these few verses here in Ecclesiastes 1 in my Sanford University context. All right? So I came to Sanford as a 29-year-old. Um, you know, young, uh, full of, you know, venom and, you know, ambition. And, and now, you know, I've been there for 14 years or however long I've been there. Um, and this is the phenomenon that I'm experiencing. The Sanford undergraduate, who is an 18 to 22 year old, you know, give or take some years on the other side of that, but the Sanford undergraduate is an 18 to 22 year old. Um, and that same undergraduate body has been there every year for me. Now, they're different people, right? I get that. But there, I get to see within, and this is a humbling thing, by the way, but I get to see in my realm of work a, st- a stable reality within university life. These 18 to 22-year-olds will exist at Sanford forever. And they're always going to be 18 to 22. And I encountered them first when I was 29. Here I am, a 29-year-old, watching all these you know, vibrant, young, intelligent, energetic 18 to 22-year-olds. And then I'm 32, and they're still 18 to 22. And then I'm 37, and they're 18 to 22. And now I'm 42, and they're still 18 to 22. And when I'm 65, they'll be 18 to 22. I mean, I think this is kind of what, what the, the, the Kohelet is after here. There's this sort of stability that you look at in the world around you, um, whether it's in nature or even for me within my particular academic world, and yet I'm not that, and I'm conscious that I'm not I'm caught up in that stability. I'm, I'm ever moving because I myself am Hevel. My, my, my own existence is a chasing after wind. My own existence is something that's here and then it's gone. And, and this is what he, he goes on here in the, in the second and third, uh, yeah, we have some time, second and third chapter, where he begins to show, um, I was going to quote Dirty Harry here, by the way, you know, Dirty Harry's famous line, um, Lieutenant, you're a good man. And a good man's got a nose limitations. You know that, right? I mean, I think this is what he's saying. You're, you're, you're a good man, but a good man's got a nose limitations. And what's all, what's the Hevel linked to? Well, in chapter one, it's linked to wisdom. In chapter two, it's linked to pleasure. In chapter one, again, going back, it's linked to toil, commerce, and wealth. So think about those three as the three biggies. The pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of pleasure, in the pursuit of toil and commerce. And even though there may be a stable order to the created world around us, we know that winter's coming, which will then lead to spring, to summer and fall. There's a kind of stability to our earthly existence. We also know that there's an instability. There's a hevel quality. There's a chasing after the wind quality. As we pursue these three major markers of what it means to live life under the sun, namely, trying to think and live well, trying to work and toil well, and trying to enjoy this life of ours. Right? That, that, that itself is the kind of chasing after, after the wind. So what's the antidote that he gives us first here um, in chapter 2? I wanted to read this to you. Here's the antidote. Let me rephrase that. One of the antidotes. There's nothing better for a person, chapter 2, verse 24, than that he or she should eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also I saw is from 
the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner He has given the, the, the busyness of gathering and collecting. So, tuck that away here. What's, what's, there's nothing better for a person that he should drink and find enjoyment in his toys. Like, oh gosh, is this Ecclesiastes gone hedonist on us? Well, hold on. Let me, let me, let's, let's press into chapter 3, and then we'll talk about it for a few seconds. Here's chapter 3. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So here we get into the stability of the created order. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, breaking down, building up, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing. This is a literary device. It's called a merism. So you get these sort of extremes that give you a sense of the totality of existence. A time to embrace, not to embrace, a time to seek and a time to lose, to keep, cast away, tear and sow, keep silence and speak, love and hate, war and peace. And now here's the interpretation of that famous poem in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And of course, this is the stuff of, you know, no offense, hippie music here. Um, he has made everything beautiful in his time. And that is a, that's a wonderful turn of phrase, but, but it actually kind of has a horrific side to it here in Ecclesiastes 3. In other words, um, within the mind of God, God knows everything as it's meant to be applied in its particular and right moment and order of time. That's, it's, and it's beautiful. But listen to how he goes on. And he's also put, and this is a difficult verse, by the way, but I think verse 11 is, is crucial here. And he's also put eternity into our hearts. So he's placed within us this sense of yearning and longing for something that goes beyond the eminence of our existence in this world. There's this kind of transcendent desire that's placed deep within us. But we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you hear that? Um, this, by the way, leans heavily into the wisdom tradition. The wisdom tradition emphasizes the importance of well-timed activities. Not only what should we do, but when should we properly do it. Think about Proverbs 15, verse 3, right? A, a, a word spoken in the right season, how sweet it is. And here Ecclesiastes leans against that just a bit to say, hold on now. Um, from a human perspective, we don't always understand when things are to be done at the right time. God's put it into our hearts, but we don't always understand when it is right to act in such and such a way. Because God's, and this is so crucial in the book of Ecclesiastes, God's knowledge and God's self is never to be equated with our own. It's never. And so where are we here? This is what he says. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is um, God's gift to man. So let me step back here and kind of frame this because we're going to continue to go at it for the next two weeks. But let, let me try to frame this just a bit. Where, where is Ecclesiastes, where is Kohelet leaving us? Kohelet is leaving us 
in the vanity room, right? Um, at the mirror, uh, forcing us to come to terms with our material existence. We cannot transcend it. We cannot escape the fact that we are human. And in our humanity, we relate to one another in ways that are marked by the fleeting character of our existence. Nothing can ultimately be grasped. And I think every one of you know, even though I have a hard time kind of really communicating the depth and the substance of this, I think every one of you knows somewhere on some kind of gut, visceral level what's being talked about here. Even the best of your human moments, even the best of them, never seal it off as if now you could walk away and say, that was perfect. I'll never need that again. Right? Or that moment was so good and yet at the same time you know that internally you're yearning for something more. The Christian tradition, by the way, would talk about this in terms of, the, of, our, of our desire for transcendence. And the fact that in our material world that's built within it that this is, there must be more. And Ecclesiastes is telling you that you cannot You cannot transcend your material existence and the trials and the struggles that come along with that. But, and this is where we'll get in chapter 5 and in chapter 12 as well, but what does a a God-centered view of reality, how does that help us? Even though we know we don't have God's mind, we don't understand the world like God understands it, perfect in its season, beautiful in its time. Even though that's put within us in some sort of seed's form, we know that we'll never have the knowledge of God and of God's own being, never. So what does a God-centered, a theistic, a Trinitarian view of reality, how does that help us navigate this? By turning to the material world that God has given us and seeing it as good. That's good. He's given you this world and the pleasures of this world that are to be ordered toward Him, knowing that whenever we enjoy the simple pleasures of this existence, they themselves attest to the fact that, number one, this is not an end unto itself. It can't be. It's hevel. But in the enjoyment of it, in the enjoyment of this hevel reality, we are on a... This is the telos. This is the movement part. We're on a journey... We're moving toward, ultimately, our life and reality in a God Himself. Pleasure is the realm of God's domain. I wanted to, I wanted to read this to you last week, but I'm going to read it to you this week. Now, this is from uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. And I think it sort of sits on this question about human pleasure. Page 43. So uh, I read this to you last week. But you remember what's going on here? Here's Uncle Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, and he's trying to give him advice on how to trip up, um, you know, this this young neophyte Christian. He says uh, uh, in his ninth letter, in the first place, I have always found that the trough periods of the human human undulation. You know, we're always kind of moving. Ecclesiastes is talking about this. Provide excellent opportunity. For all sensual temptations, particularly those of sex. This may surprise you because, of course, there is more physical energy and therefore more potential appetite at the peak periods. But you must remember that the power of resistance are then also at their highest. The health and spirits which you want to use in producing lusts can also, alas, be very easily used for work or play or thought or even innocuous merriment. 
So what's the question we're raising here? What's the proper place of pleasure in a Christian view of reality? Now, that's the question that we're raising. And he's encouraging young Wormwood here to get it all messed up. You take that pleasure and make it an end, right? And what's Ecclesiastes going to say? When you make it an end, you are face-to-face with the reality that it is hevel. It's nothing. It's fleeting. You can't, you can't grasp it. It loses its pleasure because you cannot hold it, right? So the attack has a much better chance of success when the man's whole inner world is drab and cold and empty. And it is also to be noted that the trough sexuality is subtly different in quality from that of its peak. Um, this is what he says. Much less likely to lead to the milk and water phenomenon which the humans call being in love. This, I love this. Much more easily drawn into perversion, perversions. Much less contaminated by those generous and imaginative and even spiritual concomitants which often render human sexuality um, so uh, disappointing. So this, this is the part I wanted to hear. You are much more likely to make your man a sound drunkard by pressing drink on him as an anodyne. It's nothing. When he's dull and weary. Then by encouraging him to use it as a means of merriment among his friends when he is happy and expansive. And this is the quote I wanted you to take away. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. Isn't that interesting? I love that. I mean, here's this, if you want a, a, I mean, is there a better angelology and demonology textbook than screw? I don't think so. Um, but uh, isn't that a great confession? We, we've never been able to produce a genuine pleasure, but we know how to take the pleasures that God created and distort them, and distort them in such a way that then they become self-defeating gravel in the mouth. But what's Ecclesiastes saying? Sort of bringing within a view of the world that ultimately these pleasures are never an end unto themselves. When they become that hevel, vanity, uh, ungraspability. Um, But when they become the means toward an end, when they're fitted within a world that's properly ordered. And this, by the way, I think is what, if you want a mirror of what the Christian existence is, here it is. Properly ordered desires, Right? Um, then true pleasure is to be found. And the devil knows he's never produced true pleasure. Can I read you one more quote and then I'll let you go? This is from a book that I've been kind of in a little bit. And my dad told me to read this to you, so I'm going to do it. Um, this is a book on prayer by Hans Urs von Balthasar. I don't really like being read to, by the way, but, but um, I'm going to do, do it to you. I'm sorry. Um, but try, try to track this. Again, trying to think about what does it mean to live life in light of God's reality and our material existence, transcendence and eminence. The word which God addresses to us is a word of love. He utters it in a loud, manly voice in broad daylight, almost menacing, causing man to start out of his dreams and take notice of what he hears. So God screams his love at us in a manly voice. 
Yet it is also a word whispered in the night, soft and alluring, beyond comprehension, a mystery incredible even to the strongest faith, which no creature, however long he lives, will fathom. For this voice from eternity whispers and breathes right through everything that exists in the world. That's the kind of understanding of the material world that I think Ecclesiastes is wanting you to push to. This voice from eternity whispers and breathes right through everything that exists in the world. All intramundane values. And without depriving the things of this world of their meaning and value, it lends them a bottomless dimension, exploding whatever is closed, relativizing whatever seems ultimate, revealing hidden depths in what seems simple, sweetening pain, and bringing reconciliation to what is tragic. And between the beginning, without a beginning, which is where God's eternity lies, and the endless end, which can be nowhere there too, but where God is, there fits the tiny stretch of our finite existence. So Lord, as we continue to sort of press into this, um, um, thank you for a book like Ecclesiastes that, that brings us, Lord, to the mirror. And it shows us that if, we if we're aiming to take the good gifts that you've given us in this world, our work, the pursuit of wisdom, living well, um, pleasures, Lord, if we take those and make them ultimate and final, swapping you, the Creator, for the creaturely gifts that you give us, Lord, we're left with gravel in our mouths. We're left, Lord, with smoke in our hands. We're defeating ourselves. We, we end up eating up our own selves in this pursuit of that kind of satisfying pleasure. But Lord, when we recognize that you, the Eternal One, bring our finite existence before your presence, then all these gifts that you give us, Lord, are, are, are indications, invitations, Lord, into this eternal dance that you've called us into with your very Son, where we live life well, um, where we live life with pleasure and joy and to your glory. So I pray that you'll give us this gift. I pray that you'll help us to see it and, um, and to guard us, Lord, from the tendencies that we all have to, um, to take things that are, that, are, that are means to something else and to turn them into ends. Guard us. Guard me, Lord, from that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.